Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. There come times in most of our lives when we recognize that something's got to change. Maybe it's a habit or a behavior that we're trying to alter. Maybe it's a view that we've held on to about the way the world is that we realize no longer serves us. Or maybe it's something much more fundamental, some aspect of who we are, how we view ourselves, or even our self-concept altogether, that we know we need to change in order to make our lives the way that we'd like them to be. Today, we're going to be exploring a pretty big question inside of that context. What goes into making who we are, and how can we give ourselves the freedom to grow and change over time? So to help us do this, I'm joined, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm looking forward to this discussion and what I might learn and how I might grow from it. Oh, okay. Well, great. Yeah, what a wonderful mindset to bring into it, right? We're both trying to do a little growing and changing of ourselves, I'm sure, at the same time. So we've talked a lot on the podcast in the past about the factors that can come together to create somebody's individual sense of identity. Let's start by kind of reviewing that material briefly and maybe even defining a couple of terms. We might be repeating ourselves a little bit here, but that's kind of what happens when you have 200-ish episodes. So it's sort of a necessary part of the whole process. So to start with, when somebody uses a phrase like self-concept, what are they referring to, maybe particularly psychologically? Self-concept means pretty much what it sounds like. It's a concept. It's an idea about ourselves. So a person might think of themselves as generally capable and worthy, or a person might think of themselves as damaged goods, broken, uh, inadequate, uh, someone who ought to be ashamed of themselves, someone who doesn't deserve to be treated well or to ask for anything from other people. So these are ideas about ourselves. I should add that uh, this self-concept is a little distinct from, or it overlaps, what could be called the sense of self, the sense of ourselves. And this is where we often will have body sensations, underlying feelings, or more persistent moods, inclinations behaviorally, like sitting up with self-respect and pride, or kind of curling over, being a little scared, deferential, placating, let's say, as well as a certain general attitude, a general feeling in the body. So these physical, emotional, behavioral qualities get associated with different ideas about ourselves. And they can sometimes be a little disconnected. Like I've definitely worked with people who quite proudly could list all their accomplishments, but underneath it all, they really feel like a bad person. Mm -hmm. And then to complicate it further, because, hey, we're complicated. <laughs> to complicate it further, we could say the sense of self, the idea of self, can vary depending on certain situations or certain kinds of relationships. This speaks to a whole area of research and thinking originating in psychodynamic theory, psychoanalytic theory, called object relations. It's the idea that we form fundamental, persistent models, frameworks, paradigms of relationships in which one part is the self or a kind of self, and the other element in the paradigm is another person or group of people self and so-called 
object. And therefore, for example, and, and people can relate to this perhaps, there is the sense of self we have when we're around others who are very affirming and welcoming and appreciative, okay? Then maybe there's a sense of self that we have when we're new to a group of people who maybe to <laughs> pour salt into the wound have higher status than us, or the sense of self we may have around, let's say, an authority figure who seems somewhat judgmental and critical. Okay, yeah. So to kind of summarize what you're saying here, your self-concept is basically a mental snapshot of who you are as a person. This can include your traits, your tendencies, your behaviors, and all of the other things that you think about yourself, uh, including a lot of self-judgments, as you were describing earlier, Dad. Things like, am I a critical person? Am I a discerning person? You know, that distinction of how you talk about that. Am I a kind person? Am I a, a stern person? You know, whatever. Am I good? Am I bad? Whatever those kinds of words are that a person might use to describe themselves. It can also include a lot of identity statements, which include group identities, woman, man, ethnic identities, to behaviors and hobbies. I describe myself as being, I don't describe myself this way, but somebody might describe themselves as being a type A personality. Or it might be a hobby description. I would describe myself as being a dancer and whatever that means to you. So those can all be parts of the self-concept, all of the ideas about yourself that kind of make you, you. So with that as some context, where does a self-concept come from? How do we get one? Okay, so again here too, I really want to underline the sense of self as in some ways having more momentum or depth even than ideas we might have about ourselves. And a little bit, the ideas we have about ourselves might be understood as the part of the iceberg that's above the waterline, while the sense of ourselves running in the background is underneath the waterline, and yet really is a lot of where the action is. So whether it's an idea we might have about ourselves or you know the underlying emotional somatic sense of ourselves, even in different situations or with different kinds of people, where that can come from is really all over the place. I mean, one part, obviously, as you know, uh, is heritable. It's innate, we could say, baked into our genetics. A lot of it comes from early childhood socialization. And there's a tremendous amount of research. Uh, my own background, as you know, is a lot. It has deep roots in the zero to three time period in terms of human development. And you know, we form the sense of ourselves early on, the first couple, three years, right, which is not very conceptual. So that early experience really is living below the waterline of conscious thought, let's say. We form that sense of ourselves a lot based on how other people treat us. If the infant or toddler needs something, calls out, do other people hear? Do they respond appropriately? Do they respond punitively rather than sensitively and skillfully? So out of all that, you form a sense of who I am to you, which in the mind of an infant or toddler is very close to who I am, period. And so that's sort of a basis. And then as we get older, we interact with others, not caregivers, not parents necessarily, but siblings. There's a lot of research too that we form our sense of, you could say identity. Yeah. Totally. That's part of what we're getting at here, too, in our relationships with peers. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, then you have cultural messages. Think about people who are 
situated in a frame in which they're lower status in the culture or they're the target of systemic forces of prejudice and discrimination or from the get-go they're disadvantaged they start while others around them let's say you know like privileged white men like me have a head start comparatively and so as we evaluate ourselves whether it's in classrooms in first grade or in the job market in our in middle age we evaluate ourselves in part we form ideas of who we are we develop a sense of ourselves based on comparing ourselves to others. Mm -hmm. And if the system is in some ways a little bit rigged against us, or, you know, they have a tailwind, but we have a headwind, time after time, interaction after interaction, then we form a conclusion about ourselves that's related to those systemic forces. So complicated, bad news, we learn a lot of crud about ourselves. Good news, because it was learned, we can unlearn it and learn a lot of accurate good news about ourselves. Yeah, so we'll get into that in maybe a little bit here, like what we can do about this whole thing and how can we work around massaging aspects of ourselves. I want to kind of narrow in on what's implicit inside of what you're saying here, which is that particularly as a young person, whether it's in that zero to three range where you have a lot of expertise in, or it's even going on from there, you're seven, you're 13, you're 17, you know, whatever. A lot of the time we have relatively little, and it's my favorite word, we have relatively little agency inside of this whole process. There could probably be a being well drinking game at this point, by the way, where you take a drink every time that Forrest says agency, but please don't do that because you would be sloshed by the time that you made it through three episodes. So, okay, that said, it's true here. Children are essentially big sponges. They absorb the stuff that happens to them, including the things that other people say and think about them. And a lot of the time, if you if you think about a, a four-year-old or something, watching their parents' behavior in reference to the four-year-old, they're evaluating themselves based on what their parent does to them or does around them. And they're not doing this big process of evaluating the parent's psychology and going, oh, you know, my mom's reacting to me that way because she's actually just a little anxious as a personality. No, they experience themselves as a source of anxiety. And then that nature of themselves being a source of anxiety to their mother becomes built into the child's concept about their own individual nature, not about the parent's relationship with their own defenses that has popped up inside of their act of rearing this child. And that, for me, was really, really helpful and really kind of instrumental in framing how I understood this whole territory and in framing how moving forward, we can come into more of a act of actively creating our self-concept as opposed to just absorbing one that's kind of been given to us by the world outside of us. Right. I think there's a combination here. And there are different theories of this in psychology where psychology kind of started out around 100 years ago, just as you're saying, is this notion of the infant as a tabula rasa, basically a blank sheet upon which parents and culture and other forces write a personality. More recent ways of thinking about this emphasize they're called interactionist models in which, yeah, you know, there's an interaction between external environmental forces and internal forces, including going all the way back to early, early childhood. For example, one of the ways that we form a sense of ourselves is outside the field of relationships. And one of my own 
just kind of peeves, I guess, is about people who reduce all of our development to the result of social forces. When in fact, there's a lot going on that has to do with the individual, including a young individual's relationship directly with their own body and their sense of, get ready to take a shot, agency with regard to their own body. (laughs) Are they able to turn their head away from Mm -hmm. invasive parents, let's say? One of my earliest memories is my aunt Louise, who a real sweetheart, very forceful, trying to shove potatoes in my mouth while I'm sitting in a high chair and I'm turning my head side to side. I don't want it. You know, I'm probably two maybe. And finally, she just gets it in there. So our relationship with our body and also our relationship, again, outside the frame of other people with the world around us. Can we get the darn spoon in our mouth? Do we feel successful in learning to walk? Are we able to sort of make stuff in our world and make it happen? And so that shapes our sense of ourselves too, for better or worse. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. And then definitely, even young children, I think, can have a deep kind of knowing, a knowing that often lives beneath language, it's deeper than language, but can have a really deep knowing intuitively about what's actually going on around them. And one of the interesting features in the research historically over the last several centuries on both young children and non-human animals is that the scientific understanding of the abilities of both young children and non-human animals has only been rising over time. So based on that trend line and you know some values I, I have, I would never want to bet against what even a very little kid knows deep in their bones, including knowing in their bones that mommy's sad and it's not me. It's not my fault. It's just mommy. Mommy's like that. I got to kind of deal with it, but it's not necessarily because I'm bad. And I think that kind of knowing is available even for young children sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are two complementary viewpoints on this whole territory because I think that there's a collaborative interaction between them. There are interactions that we have with other people, including primary caregivers. I mean, we've done episodes on secure and insecure attachment and the way in which somebody generates an attachment style, which is often due to the experience that you're describing, Dad, where there's this, I'm going to botch this, but there's basically this study that was done effectively on infants who ran away from their primary caregiver and they would run a little distance away and then they would look behind them and they would see whether or not they were like safe. Exactly. And they would see whether or not the parent was coming to get them or if the parent was okay. Or simply watching them. Or yeah, just watching them, exactly. Yeah. Like was the parent okay with them doing their exploration, feeling safe and resourced inside of themselves? Or was the parent like, oh my God, the world is ending, I have to go retrieve my child. Or was the parent oblivious and just chatting with somebody else on the bench there Mm -hmm. in the playground? Yep. Yep. And so there's this study on these different ways, these very subtle modes of interaction that children or babies have with their primary caregivers that are really pretty complicated and layered, to your point. To kind of cut through some of that, there's just this big ball of stuff that gets into us that ends up becoming, whether we want to call it our self-concept or self-identity or our deep sense of knowing about our inner nature. The usual mess. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like it all just kind (laughs) of rolls up in this big old ball of yarn and gets into us somehow. And the two points that I want to emphasize are one, it's complicated and it's a lot of different stuff. And two, most of the time you're not that at choice. 
And we can get into what does it mean to be at choice because we're not at choice around our genetics and we're not at choice around what the world does to us. We might be like a little bit at choice about those kind of deep senses of knowing that you were describing, Dad. But even there, you know, some of that, it's like we're not totally sure how much a two-year-old knows about the world around them because it's really hard to study what's going on in the mind of a two-year-old for a lot of different reasons. Like they're not very reliable narrators. And it's, you know, we don't want to jam too many of them into MRIs and all of this different stuff. So it's complicated territory. One of the things that I want to kind of go to from here is that, okay, we have this sense of self-concept now. It's gotten into us somehow. A lot of the time, even when we're 17, 18, 19, 20, we start to recognize that there might be traits that we have that are not really going great for us. Maybe it's around a productivity issue. Maybe it's around a way we are in relationships. Maybe it's a way that we are to ourselves. But even though we kind of start to recognize this, often we either don't do anything about it or it's very, very hard to do something about it. So to ask kind of a really big question here, why is it so hard for people to change? Like, why is that such a challenging process, particularly around issues of self-concept or identity? Hmm. At a deep level in biological evolution, there's a tension between speed and flexibility. Hmm. And more primitive, let's say, non-human animals tilt that balance heavily towards speed. Yep. Lizards jump first, but they don't have a lot of flexibility in their responsiveness. Humans are much more capable of flexibility in their responses, but they might lose an advantage in speed. I mean, mm -hmm. paralysis by analysis, mm -hmm. et cetera. So that is kind of a context. And in terms of that, we are designed to learn and to hold on to that learning. And it's really cognitively challenging often for people to update their prior learning even if that prior learning is maladaptive, causes a lot of suffering for themselves, causes harms to others, it can be really challenging for people to accommodate their previous frames of reference, their previous ideas about themselves, and especially their emotional and somatic senses of themselves. It's really hard for people to budge and internalize new information. Now, in some ways, that's a benefit because if somebody was budging all the time, they'd be just like a will of the wisp, you know, just rrr, 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 and they'd lose what they've learned how to cope, or they'd have to rethink everything from the, from scratch every single time. It's cognitively efficient, especially when people are in relatively familiar, stable environments, as our ancestors were through until about 10,000 years ago with the advent of agriculture, and then especially our ancestors were until the last hundred years or so. Things kind of were typically more or less the same. You usually spent your entire life within a hundred miles of where you were born. The cultures that you dealt with were typically pretty static, but now, wow, all kinds of things are changing, right? So one of the key questions is, of course, how do we maintain the benefits of stabilizing what is beneficial and wholesome and useful in ourselves, while also being open to new kinds of learning, including learning about who we are. Yeah, that's a real balance, you know, and I think that most people do largely to the reasons that you're describing, Dad, are tilted a little bit toward the, I find it harder to change than I would like side of the spectrum, as opposed to the, 
wow, I just feel like I'm constantly changing and I don't have as much of a continuous sense of self. But I think that they're both, you know, important things. And I, I think it's helpful to have a certain amount of like love and appreciation for an aspect of ourselves that we might find challenging a lot of the time that we find it hard to change. It's like, well, okay, mm. yes. But also there are some benefits to that that are are worth acknowledging. Um, mm-hmm. To build on what you just said, I was reflecting that with mm-hmm. people with so-called, so-called borderline personalities, uh, one of the characteristics is yeah. real volatility and sense of self. And under and as well, often a kind of what's called volatility or labile emotions, mm. very, very changeable kinds of things. And that can be very distressing. Uh, if you when people have sometimes bad psych- psychedelic experiences, yeah. there's a sense of a disruption of sort of the person, the being you are altogether. It's chaotic, you don't know who you are, it's flying all over the place, you feel fragmented. Ugh. That's not good. So there's that part. The other thing to add too mm-hmm. is, yeah. as you know, the negativity bias of the brain. That we're we're just the brain's designed to hold on to its learning, especially negative learning, particularly involving other people, and yeah. most of all when you're very young. Uh-oh. Yeah, so that's the sense. hardest to Another uh, major reason that it's challenging for people to change is cognitive dissonance, where a phrase most people listening have probably heard of, where it's very uncomfortable for the mind to hold two conflicting beliefs at the same time. And so if we've created this very continuous sense of self that has a lot of pre-existing beliefs about the self, it's really tough to get other stuff in there because if we behave in a manner that is not consistent with those beliefs, it is often extremely uncomfortable psycho-emotionally, if not like downright painful. An example of this is if you have a concept in your mind of yourself as being a procrastinator or somebody who is challenged with consistent application of effort, as I had a concept of myself for a long time being along those lines, when you act in ways that are not consistent with that, it feels profoundly uncomfortable. Some of that is just habitual, I would imagine. Some of it might relate to the dreaded experience that we've talked about in the past. But I think that also some of it comes down to cognitive dissonance. Like I've defined myself as being a procrastinator. Now I'm doing this other thing that is not that and I feel uncomfortable around it. So there are a lot of different things that come together to attempt to basically maintain our homeostasis in life. Like the organism doesn't want to change. Another example of this is like the pain of feeling like we were wrong in the past. I think that that's a major reason that people don't change particularly in public ways, as you're seeing a lot right now socially with people feeling very uncomfortable admitting certain past wrongdoings, whether they be individual or more at the societal level. And I think a lot of that is driven by the fear that they have to feel wrong now about the stuff that they did in the past. It's kind of like a sunk cost fallacy a little bit. And I think that that's another contributor to it being really challenging to change ourselves in meaningful ways. Yeah, one kind of sort of version of that is what Freud called the repetition compulsion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The sense of just doing it again and again and again. Or <laughs> as a friend of mine once joked, he was saying that lately I've really had my head up my ass. And then another friend said to him, yeah, but it's great to be home again. <laughs> <laughs> and, there, and there is this way that even though 
it's not really working for us. It's familiar. It's what we know. And just that has a certain gravitational force. Uh, so yeah, these, these tendencies we have tend to be really quite deep. And I've arguably been in the change business for 40 plus years, both internally directed and externally directed. A lot of other people too have been in the change business. And one of the really, really striking features of all this is the extent to which people who are sincerely motivated to change actually start running into a lot of internal forces that obstruct change. Not because they're bad, but internal forces. And then there are external forces that tend to want to maintain some kind of homeostatic equilibrium, like in family systems theory. And then, of course, there are external forces that really do tend to kind of hold us in place. So it's not that easy to change there, which is one reason why I've been deeply interested in how people can learn to get good at change, can get better at getting better in effect. Yeah. So one of the things that you mentioned briefly there is just the power of external forces and the way that, I mean, I think you're insinuating at least like our social groups or our social environment can exert a pressure on us to not change aspects of our behavior. And I was just wondering if you could expand on that a little bit or your personal experience with that. I'll tell you a little story. So here I am in high school, a young kid, skips grade, dorky, freshman, sophomore, extremely shy. And I felt like I was moving through a play in which I had a role. Everybody knew my role as the real kind of quiet, brainy kid in the corner, not very good at sports, leave him alone, but don't really invite him into anything. And there I was, and I lived in that. And any little time I tried to break out of that role, there was a certain resistance around me because other people, they wouldn't know how to respond to me being a little different in the play. Like I stepped out of the script, but they were in their scripts. And so it didn't work very well. Then when I was a junior in high school, my family went to Finland and where I lived there for a year with my family. My dad was a professor. He got a grant to go there. Yay, Finland, one of my favorite places. And so there I was and nobody knew me. Nobody knew how I was supposed to be, especially as soon as I stepped out of my parents' apartment, our family's apartment, because nobody knew me. I could be anybody. And I could feel this tremendous field of freedom and opportunity because to other people, they were curious. I seemed kind of cool. I was like American kid, like what? I was learning Swedish, like what? I was in a Swedish boys' school. It was okay. Uh, you know, I wasn't any good at soccer, but I was so bad I was good because I, I was like a wrecking ball going down the field with no idea how to do it properly. So all kinds of possibilities opened up for me, including stepping into the the first actual real love of my life, my first genuine girlfriend. And so I think many people have had a sense of that, where if they just step out of a familiar frame socially, they can be a different person in effect, or more exactly, they can be the real person that's been trying to break through, but which couldn't break through in their previous settings. Yep. No, I, I totally co-sign everything you're saying. I've I've often felt myself that thinking a lot about like high school and college for me and, and going through different hobbies. I did theater and fencing in high school, and then I transitioned into doing more dancing in college. And that was a really solid break between these different hobbies and these different groups. And I had had all of this learning about myself that had kind of marinated while I was in high school, but 
it was very, very hard for me to actually put it into action because people had these assumptions about my behavior that started to almost create my behavior. Like they were assuming that I would be a certain kind of way. So I would do a thing and then they would react to me based off of that assumption. So then I would follow that assumption basically. And as you were describing, fulfill the social role that had been kind of created for me. And that in large part, to be clear, I had created for myself here. Like we are also the authors of our destiny. So all of this learning had been going on, but I wasn't actually able to put it into practice in a way that felt like I could really do it until I made that transition into a new social group in college. I think we see that in relationships a lot too, where when you're in a relationship, you're doing a lot of learning about what it's like to be in a relationship. But then sometimes it's really hard to put that learning into practice in the relationship you're in. And it's often when you transition into a new relationship that suddenly you're able to put all of that learning into practice because some combination of sunk cost and just the tendencies we have with each other and the roles we've created for ourselves, all of that can kind of get washed away. And you can be a much sort of pure manifestation of who you actually are. To be clear, this is not a recommendation necessarily to abandon your social group and find a totally new one and all of that good stuff. Like there are good parts of being in a longtime group of friends or whatnot as well, particularly if it's a group of people that you feel are open to receiving your change and that you feel like you are open to changing inside of that group of people. And you feel like that's not a block to your own personal development. I just think that the social aspects of this really can't be overstated. I entirely agree with you. And it really also goes to who are we to others? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we've talked so far about, yeah, how we are, let's say, constrained by other people, maybe continuing to step through familiar routines, dialogues, roles in the scripts people live, to kind of quote, I think, Eric Byrne from the 60s. That was before you were born, Forrest. Anyway. Oh, yes. Long be long before my time. <laughs> long before your Many time. Many moons before. I think it was in the Bronze Age. But anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah. But flip it around. I, I think about myself, the degree to which, what's my footprint on other people? Mm. And to what extent can I offer to people a kind of field or space in which they have room to breathe? And I'm not demanding of them to be a certain way. I mean, I want to stress this is something I sort of aspire to, you know, it's a work in progress, but it is helpful to appreciate the impact we can have on other people by living in don't know mind, fewer expectations, fewer demands, more of an open inquiry mode, slowing it down, giving them room you know, not doing those little things with our facial expressions or body language or words that communicate negative judgments about who they're being and how they're saying it and so forth it can really have a lot of effect on other people. So, okay, we've talked about a lot of the things that keep us the way that we are. So I think it's natural at this point to transition into what the heck can we do about all of this? So we've talked a lot on the podcast about ways to build strengths. And, you know, if we're building something new, fundamentally, we're changing something about ourselves, right? We've talked about the heal process. We've talked about taking in the good. All of this stuff, it's all there through many, many, many episodes. I'm sure we'll also say some of those same words again today. But I want to approach this maybe like a tiny little bit differently. You've worked as a clinician or you worked as a clinician for many years. A lot of the time, people are in your office because there's some aspect of themselves that they want to change. 
Do you have any stories or examples without, you know, having incriminating details of people who had to change some critical aspect of themselves that could maybe offer some good or useful lessons for people here? That's a deep question for us. And if you'll allow me, I'll offer three vignettes, as we call them. I'll disguise some of the details, but the essence will be accurate. And these vignettes will illustrate sort of three possibilities, three options that I've seen over the years. The first was a man who I met with weekly for several years, really. And he would come in. He liked coming to talk with me, even though it took some time. It took a little money as well. And he was talking about feeling unhappy in his marriage and sort of unfulfilled in his work, a sense of blahness in his life, a certain boredom. We would talk about actions he could take in his work. He owned a small business and things he could do in his long-term relationship that might bring more life to it. And he would nod agreeingly. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea, Rick. He was very polite and complimentary. And then he would leave and come back the next week and everything was exactly the same. At one point he said, yeah, Rick, I, when I'm with you, it all seems great. I'm good ideas. I, I think I could do it. And by the time I get to the bottom of your stairs, you know, my office was one flight up from the parking lot. By the time I get to the bottom of your stairs, whoop, it's all gone. And then when I come back the following week, as I start walking up the stairs, it all starts coming back to me again. Okay. I went through different modes about this. Initially, I was curious. Uh, then I got actually up to kind of confronting him about it. And he, with regard to that, would nod and pleasantly and go, you're really right. I guess I'm a bad client. I got to be better at this. And great. And I, I was kind of young in my practice at that point early on. I thought, oh, good. I'm finally getting through to him. I must be a good therapist now. <sighs> what a relief. And then he would still come back the following week. Same old, same old. And then I began to reflect on this. It was a couple of years in. It's like time to reflect on it, buddy, right? And I began to realize that I was more motivated for his change than he was. I was the person in the room who cared more about his suffering than he did. And that was a problem. And partly he was drawing me into that role. In effect, he was offloading onto me concern about his well-being and agency, initiative, energy for making a difference. And that then let him off the hook. Mm, okay, yeah. It was like a performative interest, effectively. In a sense, yeah. And what happened then was I let myself drop into a kind of complete acceptance for how it was for him and not knowing, not being so sure myself about what he ought to do with his life to, to respond you know, with, in good faith to what he's explicitly said, but to just let that go and to just sort of be with him as he was, accepting him and nodding and yeah, he's really like that, taking less responsibility on my side of the desk, if you will, for how he could change or should change. And lo and behold, when I gave up influencing him and dropped really into acceptance of his way of being and communicated that acceptance to him, the responsibility ball, which he had been shoving over to my side of the court, 
kind of unconsciously. He wasn't evil or anything. It's, it's not uncommon what I'm describing here as I pushed the responsibility ball back onto his side of the court by just not taking it. Suddenly, he began taking much more initiative to actually shift his life in a better direction. So if I could just highlight, first of all, beginning with acceptance. And Stephen Hayes and his brilliant ACT therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, is an exemplar of this, or other typically mindfulness-based therapies that also emphasize this, this dimension of acceptance, beginning with acceptance. It's not necessarily where we end, but we need to start with acceptance. And then the second key point, who owns the problem? Mm -hmm. Ownership of the problem. And to the extent that even with the best intentions, we take ownership ourselves as helpers, let's say, of the problem. And so it's really important to address the fundamental frame of who owns the problem here. How much do you actually care about your own suffering? How important is it to you to actually have a difference in your life? Okay, that's one vignette. A second vignette is a man I worked with also for a number of years who was in a long-term marriage and just about every session complained about the marriage and complained about his wife as unloving, uninterested, not erotically engaged with him, someone who had some good qualities, but really someone, despite his repeated efforts, was just not warm and connecting and friendly and conversational and sort of interested in his inner world. And as a complication as well, this person had a very important kind of significant business and his wife just had zero interest in that. And so over the years, I thought, you know, oh, wow, my role is to affirm this person's complaints about the other person and try to help them come to terms with that and to come to see whether or not there really was any future in this 20-year marriage or whether it was better in middle age to take a breath and with sadness and regret, but clarity, oh, shift and move on to someone else. And so things kind of came to a head in which the wife really let him down in a number of ways and was clearly unwilling to go into therapy or engage in any way, shape, or form. And so my client kind of, with my, in some ways, agreement, came to the conclusion, yes, this is not going to work. We had a good run, but the marriage really is over and took some steps in that direction. Then what became really, really clear is that actually all along, my client had never wanted to leave the marriage. And when it actually came to some real separation from his wife, my client was devastated, upset, shocked, blamed me for it. Like, oh, how'd you let me do this, Rick? You encouraged me, you know, like it was my fault. Again, who owns the dynamic? And one of the revelations for me was to recognize the ways in which sometimes people in therapy, and you could generalize this to people in conversation with others, they're using that conversation to blow off steam really, really deep down. It's like the 10% of them or maybe the 49% of them that is talking to you very persuasively, that sounds like 100% of them, is less than the whole. And the determinative bulk of who they are, nope, it's just not ready to make that change, actually. 
and even they might even have some kind of dim awareness of that fact along the way, they're just not going to change. They don't want to change. And so it's really important to be listening. As I learned in retrospect, I should have been listening for little contradictory signs, little bits of evidence that there was more to it and more inquiring about, well, from everything you're saying, sounds like you're pretty miserable here. Um, you know, what do you want to do about it? Or what's it like for you to be really miserable in a situation that, that you're not trying to change? And it's important to be able to ask that kind of question without sounding accusatory or gotcha, but to really get at the heart of the matter. What do you really want to do here? And why does this feel like there's kind of a disconnect between what you're saying and what you're actually doing day in and day out? Yeah, to contribute to what you're saying here a little bit, Sometimes there can be, I'm going to use a kind of loaded term here, but an almost performative wanting of something. There are a lot of social forces or cultural forces or internal forces or whatever, the voice of our mother inside of our head when we're 63 years old, you know, whatever, that tell us that we're supposed to want certain kinds of things. They tell us that we're supposed to want a reliable job and a stable marriage and two children and a white picket fence and the whole thing. And a lot of this inquiry around changing the self kind of comes back to like, what aspects do we want to have in the self? And are the ones that we're saying we want what we actually want? Or do we really want this other thing over here that we think that it's kind of scary to say or socially inappropriate to say? So that's one version of kind of what you're describing, where maybe we don't actually want the thing that we're saying we want, but we know we're supposed to want it. So we kind of perform the wanting of it socially. Then there's this other thing, which is what you're describing, which is that like maybe a part of us is talking, but the whole isn't talking. Parts work is something that's done in, in therapy. Sometimes it's an interesting form of therapy. And sometimes it's really useful and healing to have a part of you speak that you know is not all of you. But it's like this little voice inside of your head and it's getting it out and it's processing that emotion and it allows the whole of you to process how the part of you feels. And that's a really interesting dynamic and it can be really useful. And it, it can be useful to use therapy that way, to have a space where you feel like you can let that part talk when that part can't talk in real life because it's threatening to the relationship that you actually want to have keep on going with your partner. And if that part were to speak, well, maybe that would torpedo the relationship because it sounds really bad when that part starts talking. So anyways, just adding a little additional detail and information onto what you were saying, which I think is very, very essential to a lot of what people go through. Yeah, really, really true. Well, here's the third vignette. Yeah, third vignette. Mm -hmm. Again, I'll try to be kind of quick here. So this was a woman I worked with for many years. And the history is very relevant to where we started about how our history shapes us, including in early childhood. She grew up in a family that had a fair amount of wealth, and her parents were very detached and very kind of cold. They weren't directly abusive, but they were very not warm. They were emotionally neglectful. And she was raised by nannies of various kinds in which probably there was a fair amount of physical abuse and extreme punishments, like being locked in a closet for a while, just as a three-year-old, say, wow, or even younger. And so as an adult, she was successful. She became an attorney, was really quite successful at work. But deep down inside, she was very internally inhibited. 
and drawn to authoritarian men as partners that she would attach to, who then really clearly, not physically, but emotionally, would mistreat her really badly and dominate her and control her. But for her, in her object relations, these men were the sun that her planet orbited. She couldn't imagine breaking free. It was both terrifying to come into close intimacy with them and also terrifying to her to really fully individuate and become independent and very much her own person. This is technically what's called a schizoidal object relations, characterized a lot by what's called orbiting. You don't really land on intimacy. You don't break free into autonomy either. You orbit. Okay. And so then the therapy. She is in the Hall of Fame for me of people who worked really hard to overcome deeply, deeply rooted in early childhood, multiple complex trauma, most likely kind of history there. And so she, to our topics today, began with me with a self-concept and a sense of herself as ugly. Part of it was she had body dysmorphic disorder. She just viewed herself as ugly and unwantable, even while really as a middle-aged person being perfectly attractive. That's how she saw herself. She also saw herself as someone who did not deserve good treatment from others and someone who expected that if she had all asserted herself, other people would punish her horribly and then abandon her. That was her sense of who she was. In the face of tremendous evidence to the contrary, daily evidence of people at work, including relevant here, many men who respected her, did not try to dominate her, appreciated her, you know, gave her the feeling that they found her perfectly appealing as a married woman that they were very friendly with. And, and yet, deep down inside, that early learning really, really, really persisted. So to summarize a lot of journeying over easily a decade with me, she worked at a lot of levels. She tried to address the more conceptual, cognitive aspects of things. Also, we worked at it more somatically. I referred her out to a somatic therapist who worked with her about expressing some of those early childhood feelings that just were bottled up and which were not very well addressed through more cognitive methods, cognitive behavioral methods. She really needed to get it out in a very somatic way. That was really helpful for her. She gradually took steps a bit by bit, risking the dreaded experience, as you and I talked for us, in which she was just a little bit more assertive at work or a little bit more firm with her husband. And then when it would go basically okay, she would internalize the sense of that and gradually push out the bars of her invisible cage of her self-concept and sense of herself. And as the years went by, she eventually left that husband. She eventually ended up in a much better relationship. She became much more confident and with a much better sense of herself. Yes, in certain high-intensity old script situations, she could start to feel that very old sense of being muzzled and trapped and needing to be invisible just to survive that would come over her. But on the whole, she really was able to break out of that old way of being. And to me, one of the great lessons of this is that the more stuck we are, usually the longer it takes and the more we need to do 
In other words, the efforts we need to bring to bear are in proportion, no surprise, to the underlying problem. Okay, got that. It's also really true that if we bang away at it and keep at it, we really can grow and change. And last, there's almost no way to grow and change without taking some risks. Risks in how you experience yourself, risks of discomfort, as you were speaking of earlier in terms of cognitive dissonance, you know, you, to really budge, it can be uncomfortable, it's not familiar. Also risk with other people. On the other hand, what are the risks of not budging, not changing? And to finish, I guess, one of the things that I find across the board in all three cases is the skill of being budgeable. <laughs> How do you help yourself <laughs> being budgeable so that you become increasingly confident and comfortable in budging and discerning? When is it time to hold them? And when is it time to fold them and budge and shift and let yourself die a bit to the old way and incarnate in some sense of that word in the next moment in a newer way of being, a newer way of being you. I think those are some great reflections and some great kind of initial spread of good advice for people who might be listening, wondering, hey, how can I do more of this myself with something that's challenging for me? To use your third example there as a kind of case study here, were there moments or sessions or interactions where there was a thing that happened or a thing that they really just got in that moment that changed their ability to work with that old material or take on a new sense of identity? Were there like critical moments and what were those like? One key moment, I can, I'll name two that might have general relevance for, for other people. One was when this, she would have images come up of being two or three really young in a kind of cage type environment with a vague sense of shadowy figures around her who were mean and punishing and horrible. As a therapist, I think we've talked about recovered memory syndrome and issues around recovered memory, you know, in previous podcasts. Yeah, a little bit. Mm -hmm. But there's this middle place where I think we don't know for sure what happened, but we can start to explore based on the history, based on things you know, was this plausible? Is it consistent with the psychology here? Maybe it wasn't a cage per se. Maybe it was being held under a blanket or in a closet, or it was something different, but the heart of the matter is the same. And what happened was that she doubted her own history a lot. She blamed herself. She was like, must be something wrong with me. And that's often the case too, when there's an abuse history, almost a kind of denial of how bad it really was, not wanting it to be that bad or really, really, really letting other people off the hook. And for me, it was an important moment when I said, you know, as a clinician, obviously I wasn't there, I don't know exactly and so forth, but everything about you and your way of being and these images that are coming up that have a tremendous compelling power and the ring of truth to them that seems historically accurate given where you were when you were two years old and who was primarily in charge of your care, this is highly credible. And I really do think this did happen to you. This is real. Boom. And there was something about that that was a tremendous relief to feel validated. Oh, 
There are reasons why I feel like crap. There are reasons why I can never say what I know I should say. There are reasons why I keep being drawn to the same guys who keep mistreating me. Oh, there's something about that. The naming of what's true. It's so freeing to own it, to see it. Yes, it was like this. I was treated terribly. I was hurt. I was wounded. I was a little kid. You know, to just kind of uh, own all that. Really, really important. So a second key turning point in the history here, we're talking about 10 years roughly, she finally separated from her husband. It was a nasty divorce, but the nature of the husband became clearer and clearer, which was actually useful to her in the process of the divorce. And then separating, she ended up after a year or so with another person. And this time, a very different kind of guy, a guy who is out of central casting. In other words, he did not fit the standard script. He wasn't the villain character that she'd always been drawn to with different names and faces. He was a different kind of person. He was accepting. He was relaxed. He really appreciated her. He was not controlling. He was not narcissistic. And yet a lot of this counter evidence was not landing in my client. She wasn't able to budge. Mm -hmm. And we had a real moment where in a kind of inquiring way, not me hectoring her, pounding on her, because that just tends to reinforce the old ways of regarding oneself. But in a kind of an inquiry way, I just sort of started asking her, well, I'll call her new partner, Bob. I'll say, well, so does Bob, da-da. She said, well, actually, no, he never does that. Oh, it was like there was this cascade of almost revelation that she had escaped. Ah, I've walked away from the train wreck. I put some distance between me and it. It's a new day. It's not necessarily heaven. It's not a perfect world, but oh, it's it's categorically different. And then ba-boom, that really landed in her. Great. Yeah. No, I mean, I think two really good good moments of inflection for a person, and I think ones that are resonant for a lot of people. We've had people on the podcast in the past. I'm thinking of the conversation that we had with Chris Germer quite a while ago, a couple of years ago at this point, I think, where he told a story about his relationship with his dad and working with a therapist, where he told a story about this time where his dad didn't show up to something for him. And the therapist was really emotionally moved by it. And Chris was telling the story with really very little affect, like very little emotional affect. He wasn't particularly sad. He was just reporting it like a series of facts. And it was his seeing that the therapist was emotionally affected that allowed him to say, oh, there's something about this that is emotionally affecting. Maybe I should be emotionally affected. And then you can get into that kind of collaborative interaction between your body and somebody else's body and them working together to kind of guide you wherever you need to go. And I think that that's a really central part of this is recognizing what's true right now. To again, put things back in our language of self-concept and changing the self and how can we change the self. We can only get somewhere else if we know where we are right now. Very well said. And knowing where we are right now requires that we recognize some of the forces that have gotten us to where we are right now including really unpleasant ones, like the ones that you're describing in that story and many of those stories, where things came together 
to create a situation that is not the way that you want to be. Mm. It is not the truest manifestation of your deep self. It is not the diamond that you want to massage the colon to, you know, whatever metaphor we want to go with here. It's just not the way you want to be. And some of that is our fault. We have to take agency. We have to take responsibility. Like some of this is our fault, but a lot of it is things that happen to us. And it's our response to things that happen to us that were extremely unpleasant. And we've talked a lot about unpleasant experiences in the past, but I think that for some people can actually be very freeing to go back through their personal history and identify the moments or the periods where things just went sideways whether it was a relationship with a parent or a relationship with a group of friends or a job, and to just look at it and come into a recognition of that sucked, that was really bad, and here are some of the behaviors that it created. And to view those behaviors as creations of that circumstance. And then you can have a moment of looking at those behaviors and going, is this how I want to be? And I'm using the word behaviors here very broadly. It could be actual like behavioral things, or it could be self-concept. It could be inclinations about the way you view yourself, whatever. And But I think that that could be a really important and critical process for people. I think it's beautiful for us to reflect on turning points in our lives. Yeah. In, I'll call it the construction of the self. And I'm going to use the word self really broadly as synonymous with the whole person we are inside of which can feel like there's a certain stable perspective or ego, if you will, that's an aspect of this person as a whole that some people might call the self, but I mean it as a whole. Yeah, the construction of the self. What are those turning points? What are those places where, in a funny kind of way, maybe if we go back to some of those turning points, we can recognize that at that turning point, we put on a bit of the cloak of the false self. We acquired another layer to our act or another thread in that tapestry, that cloak. And by going back to those turning points, whatever they might be, I think to myself, uh, key turning points, when I move from one school to another, key turning points in certain relationships, key choices, Turning points when you have children or you're drawn into certain roles as a parent, given the reality of how your other parent is, and therefore what you get drawn into being more of in your own family, even if it's not really your preference or your nature, but somebody has to fill that void. You know, these are turning points. And it's interesting to reflect, maybe people might like to do this on one or more key turning points in your life and ask yourself, okay, what was lost? that would be worth recovering and reclaiming today that maybe you turned away from a way of being key values you had that you really want to emphasize in who you are in this world i turned away from a certain quality of playfulness around at certain times and i've <laughs> in my old age been trying to reclaim that <laughs> uh, you know and then also maybe what was gained at that turning point in terms of who you are that's worth doing. I think also going to a topic we explored a few podcasts ago about being that deeper than role, identity, deeper than self-concept, deeper than the false selves, the acts we put on, sometimes necessarily, deeper than all that, there can be an ongoing sense of simply being 
And I think the closer also that we get to that simple sense of the ground state of simply being with little thought bubbles and feeling bubbles, personality bubbles arising, but not following after them and not solidifying them and getting encrusted into them, but rather staying really close in the present moment to that ongoing sense of being. The closer we get to that, then we have more freedom. We're less implicated in these little self-cascades that emerge out, that get encrusted and solidified and we get identified with. And that too is something people might want to reflect on, how to stay closer in the present to the immediacy of this moment of experiencing, whatever it might all be, without getting swept away into a more mechanical, habitual, robotic construction of self. That's really interesting, yeah. And I think moves people closer to whatever nature means, maybe to an extent, that detail, that correction, however you want to frame it, that you said kind of early on in the episode around self-concept versus being, essentially, or or self-concept versus something that lies a little bit deeper than that. Or what does a child really know, actually, when they're young about the world around them in a very authentic, very true way that isn't just derived from their relationships with people, but is derived from their own perception of the world and their own kind of original thought inside of it. To summarize maybe some of these things or bounce some ideas off of you here, Dad, I think that there is kind of a a process for this that a person could go through if they wanted to really engage with self-concept or self-identity change. And the first one I think is about, obviously, identifying what do you want to change and working through everything we were talking about earlier about, okay, do you really want to change this? Is this something that you want or is this something that you're doing because you feel like people are telling you to do it? And that's a really important distinction, I think. And then, okay, going into why do you want to change this aspect of yourself? Who is telling you to change this aspect of yourself? Again, is this socially driven or is it a want that emerges from inside of you? Is it the voice of your mother that's telling you to change this thing or is it because you actually want to do it? Okay, then from there, you can do some activities, some behaviors around identifying previous moments of transition where you were able to feel successful inside of that. And that can give you a good resource for feeling like you are capable of changing yourself. And hey, look at the ways in which it went okay in the past. If you don't have many of those, that's okay too. Maybe there's learning about pitfalls to be avoided in the past or things that you left behind that you wish you'd taken with you. Okay, from there, maybe we go into coming to peace with moments of transition. Change happens not getting attached to like sunk cost fallacy, being open to the idea that stuff needs to change, evaluating the field of play around you and asking yourself, okay, what external aspects of my life maybe could I alter in order to make internal change more possible? Then from there, I think that coming into that touch of the basis of what you're changing, reframing your past experiences, creating the coherent narrative that we've talked about many, many times on the podcast, coming into the truth of what really did happen and how, yes, we're at cause, but we're also at effect, and really touching our self-concept as something that is not just given to us, but something that we actively choose and create ourselves in our life. Where like, I don't want to have a concept of forest that exists out of not like coincidence, but kind of coincidence. It's just the forest that existed to all of these other people that I've just perpetuated over time. No, I want to really actively choose the aspects of myself 
and the way that I am. I don't want to be bound to a view of myself that is like over-intellectualized. I want to be open and flexible and capable of moving into a view of myself that's more emotionally driven or more heart-oriented or more artistic or more playful, like you were saying before, Dad, whatever it is. And I think that if you do all of that, if you're able to move through all those steps, you've laid a really, really good foundation for success around whatever the actionable changes you need to make are to start to move into altering self-concept. And the reason that we're not spending so much time with like all of those is for one, they're probably extremely variable depending on what you want to change. And for two, we've actually done a lot of episodes on that. So all of the information that Rick has around his heal process have enrich, absorb, and link the taking in the good process, all of the the material in the uh, learning chapter in Resilient is all basically about how do you actually change. Um, We have an episode, How to Change Your Brain, which goes into that in detail as well. This is really more about like laying that foundation for identity change. So does that all kind of resonate with you, Dad? Did you like that little rubric I laid out there? It was very Rickian. It was very like the three-point plan to the four-point plan. I was trying to channel you there while I did that. How did I do? Well, yes, good channeling. I appreciate it. You know, maybe I'll just add one more that is like a shortcut. Yeah, please. Because we covered so much ground in this conversation about a very far-reaching topic. Mm -hmm. I think one of the fastest ways to change, and one of the easiest ones, one of the most enjoyable, is to get a sense from memory, let's say, or just getting in touch with it right now, that essentially has to do with, what do you like when you're really at your best? When you're really shining. So you might think of certain settings, perhaps this woman I was talking about at the very end was an excellent skier. And on the slopes, she was intense, she was assertive, she was free, and she took no crud from anyone. And so we could talk about that as a kind of anchor for a way of being that she wanted to increasingly inhabit. Or you might think about, what do you like when you're around people who really see the best in you and are supportive of you? What do you like? What do you like maybe when you've had a chance to just get quiet and shed all your daily concerns, your daily stresses and pressures. Maybe you've gone away, walked on the beach for an afternoon or gone on a workshop or a meditation retreat. You know, who are you then? Who who really are you? And then once you have a clear sense of that, and the, the more somatic, the better. I mean, how do you shift your body? What's that like in terms of your posture, your facial expression? What are the thoughts going on? What are the feelings going on? What's the sense of who you are? the richer and and the more embodied a sense of that you can really get. And then take it in, (laughs) inhabit it, and open to it inhabiting you. I think of the language of dwelling or occupying, you know, occupy Wall Street or where do you dwell? What dwells in you? And what we dwell in becomes what dwells within us, becomes our dwelling place. And that's really, really a powerful way to grow. I mean, for me, one of the key breakthroughs was who I was when I broke away from the group of my Boy Scout troop in Indian Cove in Joshua Tree Park and started clambering on the boulders all by myself and climbing under them and being strong and free as a, as a young boy, about 11 years old. The who I was then became really a, a kind of a template or 
anchor in a way of who I wanted increasingly to be and take my stand in, rest in. That's a very quick and powerful shortcut for lasting growth. Yeah, I think that that's great advice. Who are you when you trust yourself? Who are you when you hope for the best, but you're living freely and you're not living in fear of what the next thing might be? Who are you? You know, who are you when when people really listen to you, for example? Okay. Yeah, and I think it's a great exercise. And it's also a very kind of inside out one. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's very experiential, it's somatic, it's all of that. To kind of complement that with maybe an outside in one and perhaps a closing reflection to an episode where I think we've explored a lot of content. In my other life, in my Just for Funsies life, I'm a serious dancer. And I dance as a serious hobby and have for about 15 years at this point. And through that period of time, I've also taught a lot. And I've taught a lot of people how to dance and how to be a dancer. And one of the things that I hear people say a lot when they first enter a dance class or when they've been training for a little while, but Maybe they're a little bit older, they're a little bit more middle-aged, they don't have a movement history or something like that, is they'll say things like, I don't feel like a dancer. That's really interesting, right? That's an identity statement. I don't feel like a dancer. I don't belong here, right? And there's an imposter syndrome that can be associated with that as well. That can be really powerful and really inhibitory for people. Yeah. And normally I approach this a lot of different ways. There are a lot of different ways to interact with it. But one of the first ways to interact with it, I think, is just by asking, well, but do you dance though? And they say, yes, I dance. And I say, well, okay, well, you are what you do. And if you do it for long enough, you will eventually become it. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a way where, I don't know if I'll catch some flack for this or not. We've sort of moved so far inside of the personal growthy field into this really deep evaluation of like the deep nature and the deep self and all of this stuff that I think that some of the positive aspects of just fake it till you make it have kind of gotten lost a little tiny bit because they're like less sexy, basically, and and they're less true. But I do think that a lot of the time we are what we do. And if you feel like you're having a hard time getting into contact with some of these deeper approaches to changing identity, one way to start to do it is just by doing it and just by changing your behavior. And if you change your behavior for a long enough period of time, what will happen is you'll start to have evidence that you are able to do this thing. And you'll have an accumulating stack of experiences so that when the person says, I'm not a dancer, I can say, well, you just performed in the thing last week, and then you competed in this other competition a month and a half ago, and so on and so on. You start to be able to argue against that more effectively, particularly arguing against that kind of very self-critical voice in the mind. And I think that that can be really helpful for people because sometimes we just sort of are what we do. So if some of these more deep or esoteric or introspective aspects of this are kind of hard to access for you, start by doing. Just try something on, see if you can commit to doing it for a week and see if that behavior can move you more down the road into the more kind of challenging aspects of what we're talking about here. Wonderful. Really good. Okay. So I think that that's it for us here today. So today we talked about changing our self-concept and ways we can reinvent ourselves. We started by defining what self-concept means, which to put it simply is a kind of mental picture of who you are as a person. Rick then added that it could also include deeper layers of self-knowledge or truths about yourself maybe that you knew when you were very young on a deep primal level. 
And Rick added maybe even a sense of being altogether who you truly are, irrespective of other forces that exist outside of yourself. But aspects of self-concept can include everything from traits and descriptions of yourself, if you think of yourself as being nice or mean, hardworking, intelligent, strong, weak, whatever. They can also include identity statements, ranging from aspects of group identity, I am a woman, I am a man, I am something else entirely, to things like behaviors and hobbies. I'm a type A personality, or I'm a dancer, to give a couple of examples that we used during the conversation. Self-concept comes from a lot of different places. To summarize, a reasonable guess is that about half of our traits and tendencies find their roots in our genetics, and about half come from our developmental history. And there's some evidence that a child's sense of self-concept begins to emerge within the first year of life. In both of these areas, in both our genetics and our early development, a person has relatively little agency. Children are basically clumps of nerve endings. Their job is to experience the world around them, and they do relatively little influencing of it. But a big part of the growth process for a child is feeling like they can influence the world in some ways. They do have control over whether or not they rotate their head to avoid something, or whether they can look back over their shoulder and see that their parent is still watching them play. But most of the time, when a child is told that they are lazy, they're relatively unlikely to believe otherwise. Some will, but many won't. Then if lazy gets repeated enough, they really start to integrate that into their self-concept. And this can create a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If somebody believes that they're lazy, they might often start to act in lazy ways. And then this creates more evidence that they are lazy, which then reinforces that cycle. I also want to mention here that a big part of the puzzle is the caregiver's relationship with their own nature and own defenses. A lot of things happen during child rearing where a parent's response to the child isn't actually about the child at all. It's about them. And most of the time when you're a five-year-old, you know, Rick threw a little bit of cold water on this around saying that sometimes when you're five, you really do know that your parent is just anxious. But I think for most children, they tend to take that pretty personally and they assume that they are the problem. As a general rule, children look to their parents to define the world around them. If a parent treats them as fussy and fragile, they're going to assume that they're fussy and fragile, not that their parent is nervous or preoccupied. And this gets us to a really key concept. Most of the things that create our self-concept, at least initially in our lives, are given to us. They're given to us by other people. They're given to us by our genetics. They're not actively chosen. And a big part of this conversation that we're having here today is about moving into a stance of active choice, where we choose who we want to be. Layered on top of all that complexity is another factor that influences us a lot, and that's our environment. There are a lot of forces that try to keep us the way that we are right now. Many of those forces are social, some of them are cultural. An example of these is called stereotype threat. Stereotype threat is a well-researched phenomenon that shows that if somebody is at risk of confirming a negative stereotype associated with a group that they belong to, their performance tends to drop. One of the foundational studies in this territory demonstrated that reminding a student of negative intellectual stereotypes associated with their group 
prior to testing dramatically reduced their performance on that test. So our understanding of the way that we are supposed to be, essentially based on the groups that we belong to, can really define what we do in the world. Another big factor is the pain that can come from feeling like we were wrong in the past, and therefore clinging on to some maladaptive behaviors that are no longer really serving us. Moving toward what to do, Rick gave a number of examples from clinical practice aimed at ways that people can approach changing their own identity. One of the pieces of advice that he gave that really stuck with me is the importance of coming into a real place of acceptance for the way the world was when you were young or the things that really did happen that came together to make you, you. Having that acceptance, creating that coherent narrative can really work wonders for establishing a solid ground from which to change. From there, he gave three case studies of different people that he had worked with over time and the ways in which each of them approached the hard task of changing their self-concept. One of the lessons from that, again, was about, do you really want to change? Are you changing because you want it? Or are you changing in a performative way because somebody else wants it? Or is it really just a little part of you that wants that change when the whole of the rest of you might actually be fighting against it? Then toward the end, I gave a kind of list of things to do in order to establish, again, a solid ground for changing self-concept and self-identity. I won't restate the whole thing, but some important parts of it include identifying what's holding you back initially and defining what you want to change, coming to peace with key moments of transition, reframing our past experiences, and maybe even imagining the future through the lens of a new self. One thing I want to say at the end here that I didn't have an opportunity to during the podcast is that it can be really valuable to be a dreamer. We can't become something that we can't imagine. And if we can't view a possibility for ourselves in the future of being a different kind of person, it's very, very hard to bring that plausible self into our current reality. So the only thing that can really allow us to do that is by having an active imagination and really an open mind about what might be possible for us in the future. So if you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. You can also find us on Instagram at beingwellpodcast, and I have a YouTube account as well, Forrest Hansen on YouTube. If you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. Thank you again so much for listening to the show. It really does mean a lot to me. And we'll be back next week with another full-length episode. Until then, thanks for listening.